very welcome to a special episode of the Leader Series podcast here at IMI. As the crisis in Ukraine continues to unfold, a variety of leadership approaches are coming into focus as the leaders themselves make their mark on the evolving conflict. This week, to assess the dynamics at play, we're joined by Mark Mellet. A former Chief of Staff of the Defence Forces, he's served his country for over 48 years in Ireland's regular and reserve forces. He is an IMI Life Fellow and is a member of the IMI Council. I started off our conversation by asking Mark to put the current situation in context based on his vast experience. Yeah, well, I think uh, Ukraine is a symptom of a much bigger um, geopolitical shift that's been happening over the last decade or so. Um, and the, the tragedy that we see now in Ukraine is um, the price of those, that, that sh- those shifting um, I suppose, power uh, blocks. Um, I think a number of years ago, the, the, we've, we began to see the regression from what we have really enjoyed here in Europe, which is the dividend of multilateralism, almost 75 years of, uh, notwithstanding the Balkan Wars, but almost 75 years or over 75 years of relative peace uh, in the European community and now the European Union. And um, we know that was built on the visionary and the leadership of uh, the likes of Robert Schumann. Uh, but it was also built on, on I think, a, a commitment, uh, an investment like the Marshall Plan in the post-Second World War, a 15 billion US dollar investment to rebuild the actual infrastructure of the very state and others that were impacted by the, the Second World War, including Germany. But what's happened in the last decade, and I think it was really brought into a sharp focus in particular during the the Trump administration, was this regression back to a unilateralism or almost a populism. And uh, to to exacerbate matters, make them worse, you also then had on top of that was Brexit. And then the growing kind of nationalistic or almost um, autocratic, uh, I suppose, uh, regimes like you see in Hungary, uh, under Orban, which is um, going to obviously carry on for some time. And then you had this sense of disunity in NATO, whereby um, it was becoming a, a political football. Uh, it, in many ways, it was uh, being used by Trump to beat up um, other member states of the NATO alliance that they weren't paying their part. And the suggestion that uh, Europe was free riding in the context of the security architecture that was being provided by the main member of NATO, that is the US. So you have um, this sense of Europe free riding in terms of security. You have this awakening in terms of Europe saying, uh, and I think it was uh, Burrell used the language, the alarm bells are ringing. And the 2016 Council conclusion saying um, Europe needs to be able to act unilaterally where necessary but in partnership where possible and that was beginning to suggest a new direction for Europe in terms of it it could see the cold wind beginning to blow because of this pivot by US towards Asia and towards China and uh, Europe becoming more um, squeezed in the context of these moves and I think then Russia saw its opportunity Looking at Russia, I suppose Russia has a paranoia over security and uh, that's a reality. And I was in Poland um, about four weeks ago and I visited a a cemetery there which actually had about 500 uh, 
predominantly British servicemen in it. And you know the the um, the supposed the the poignant piece was the ages and those headstones were twenty one and twenty five and twenty two and even nineteen throughout all of those. But just over the wall, there were three thousand uh, Russian graves from the um, Second World War, and the price that Russia paid in that uh, war is is extraordinary and quite significant. Of course, there were thousands of Polish graves there as well. And I couldn't help but just think that just 600 kilometers to the east, um, there was a war now between Russia and uh, Ukraine, which um, when it said just so seemed so, so, so insane. The, the issue with regards to Russians' obsession with security is rooted in uh, events like the Second World War. But it's also, I suppose, a paranoia that has been stoked by, um, I suppose, rhetoric coming from NATO and engagement in terms of dialogue with the likes of Ukraine with regards to potentiality of NATO membership and the expansion of NATO in the context of the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we move into where we are now. And what we see is um, a litany of miscalculations. In any crisis, you know, in any war, uh, from my own education point of view, there are two key strands that you look at. One is the matter of pre-war plans, and the second is post-war settlements. So if you look at the pre-war plans, then, you know, that's your, your, your game plan as to how you're going to uh, uh, prosecute this war. And the post-war settlement is what your objective is at the end. What will this all look like? in the context of uh, having played the game. And, uh, and I use the word game because it's a strategy and, and uh, that's the way it would be looked at. But I, I don't want in any way to uh, belittle the real horrific tragedy that's there. But strategy is really about taking a bet on how things would play out. And almost every front, Russia and the Russian Federation miscalculated. I think the the miscalculation in terms of their own capability. There's no doubt that Russia has extraordinary physical capability in its forces, but I think the um, physical component of its forces was not matched by the moral component of its soldiers. And um, that's really coming home to roost in the context of many of its soldiers are conscripts. And there was misinformation with regards to the purpose of the actual uh, invasion. There was a complete miscalculation in terms of the capability of Ukrainian forces, and that there's no doubt that the physical component of um, Ukraine's forces were in no way a match for the physical component of the Russian forces. But the moral component was extraordinary, and we've seen that. And, and that brings me on to the, the third miscalculation, which was the absolute uh, charismatic leadership of uh, Zelensky who has served as a, almost a, 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 an extraordinary capacity to rally his troops in the context of not just his military force, but also a, a unity of effort in terms of the civil society in uh, Ukraine. And what he has then, and this is you know, a real challenge for Russia, is he has galvanized the international community. He has galvanized the European Union he has galvanized NATO, uh, whereby the collaboration within NATO has never been like it is at present for over, over two decades. So it's, it's extraordinary what has all these miscalculations in terms of pre-war plans actually leave your vision of what the post-war settlement was going to look like 
in tatters. It, it really uh, could not be worse in the context of a, a bet as to what the future will look like. So you can forget about it and take away the idea of what were the post-war settlements that Putin had in mind when he went across the line. They're, they're simply, uh, they must be completely different now in the context of what he, his expectation was. And we could, we could uh, speculate um, till the cows come home as to what was his ambition. But I think everybody um, was of a view that for Putin, even with the best odds, for Putin to bite off Ukraine was too much of an undertaking. Uh, Sun Tzu has spoken about the golden bridge to retreat. I, I just can't see what this golden bridge to retreat looks like for Russia and the Russian Federation and Putin in particular. I cannot see how, uh, as a personality and an individual, Putin can actually operate within the institutions, UN Security Council, UN itself, and uh, in the context of the institutions of civil society uh, globally. It just is, it just seems to me impossible because for him to operate with impunity in those institutions is for us to actually um, fall into the trap of accommodating uh, what effectively is um, a, a, a real perversity in the context of what it is to be civilized. Absolutely, and yeah, that's that's a fantastic breakdown. I think several things you said there stand out: the, the litany of miscalculations, and also something you said which struck me in relation to um, President Zelensky of Ukraine, and the different. You mentioned his kind of the charismatic leader that he's managed to galvanize his people and indeed the European Union uh, behind Ukraine. I'm interested to get your viewpoint on the leadership styles that we're seeing. Would you be able to give kind of the leadership angle and what you're seeing and, you know, what's working, what isn't working, what's coming to the yeah, fore? I, I think what, what you're seeing with Zelensky is, you know, a steeliness uh, in terms, but, but it's not a steeliness in terms of an arrogance. It's almost a steeliness with, an, with a humility. Like whenever you see him, he is with his team and he is comfortable with his team. And he's taken on almost the role of a warrior with his team. Uh, he's quite a small man, so he's always, he's always outsized by those around him. But his, um, his extraordinary talent, I think, is in his uh, communication skills. And uh, you can see that he has really leveraged um, communications as the, the ability to build a coalition. Coalition internally first in terms of cross the constituencies within Ukraine and his military in the first instance, but across political divides, uh, across the civil society domain. And you'll find very few critics of uh, Zelensky within Ukraine or internationally. But there is also his adherence and his communi communications around the values of civil society. We, all, we are all uh, on the hook for that because, um, you know, really what he is articulating, what's what are the institutions of a civil society all about? And for me, you know, the institutions of civil society where people are free, where the institutions of state function and where the vulnerable are protected. And all of those are under attack now because of Russia. And he keeps on bringing us back. And in many ways, he uses his extraordinary capacity to communicate, to actually hold us to account as an international community. And that's, that's real strategic leadership. 
Uh, and he has really used that inversion of power to an extraordinary extent, whereby he has used social media. Uh, he has used it in terms of his own Twitter account. He's used it in the context of his ability to reach across to uh, other jurisdictions and communicate with legitimate authorities. As we kind of look at the post-war scenario, whenever that might come to pass, what do you think are the qualities that the leaders of Europe and maybe those closest to the conflict will require to be able to kind of um, reach some kind of accord, if that's even possible at this point? Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's real risk with that. And I think we, 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 we could do well to look back at our own history in terms of this time 100 years ago, in terms of what was happening in Ireland. We, we were um, well in trail in, in a, a civil war at this stage. And... Uh, the reality of this civil war was a result of um, a, a difference in opinion in terms of uh, what the objective was. And, and I think the same challenges will face Ukraine uh, because clearly that golden bridge that um, Putin so desires um, could have something like um, Donbass and Luhansk uh, being solidified as his bridge towards Crimea. Well, in Putin's eyes, the end game, and he has this date in terms of May, whereby he is going to try, and it's less than three weeks, I think, to get to that point where he's going to try and have something that he can declare as a victory. But uh, I think the odds are stacked against him in terms of succeeding to meet that deadline. So while the Russian forces continue to seem to be coming to become weaker, um, the uh, Ukrainian forces are holding their own. If anything, they're probably coming stronger. It's, it's really tough to call. And I don't think uh, anybody has a crystal ball in terms of what will happen here. What we have seen throughout this is the different types of, I suppose, leadership personalities that have come to the fore. Um, and as you kind of look back now, Mark, and you look at what, what's this going to look like in time, what do you think this particular you know, situation with Ukraine reveals about leadership generally? Yeah, I, I, I think um, the critical importance of communications is the piece that um, it, it rings out to me. And the second piece is the importance of building a collaborative network in terms of, a, you can call it a coalition if you like. So it's, it's, it's not about just a charismatic leader. It's about that ability of how you use that talent to uh, create that coalition and align the stakeholders in a manner whereby you build a, a power that actually is, uh, in many ways, it's like, a, it's like a capacity to achieve effects without just necessarily you know, the use of kinetics, if that makes sense. And what mm -hmm. being constructed by Zelensky is exactly that. He has created a movement which is about an effect that is a really consolidated world opinion and uh, you know, come at the hour, come at the man, and uh, he has uh, he has done this with uh, extraordinary um, style, but also with humility. And I think that that is the key piece on this: is a recognize recognition that uh, to achieve power, sometimes you you have to cede power, but but you do so in 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 a manner whereby it's it's about those you bring into the rook with you to actually achieve your objectives. The, um, so just using the communications piece again and on the flip side in terms of what's, what does it reveal about Putin? I think the dilemma with Putin is that uh, communications has been uh, shocking. 
I don't think Putin has been getting the feed in terms of what's actually happening on the ground. I think there was an echo chamber with regards to an inner team that actually um, more or less uh, said what they thought Putin wanted to hear and um, reinforced his self-belief of infallibility. Uh, and they continue to actually communicate in such a manner to the extent whereby the real risk here is that the misinformation coming from the front will continue uh, to the point whereby the decisions coming from the center in Russia will continue to be suboptimal to a point whereby it could get really dangerous. And that's the point whereby we could actually start seeing uh, what has already been signaled, the issue of use of chemical weapons, which would actually be shocking or worse, uh, worse than chemical weapons. Uh, and that's, that's something that uh, everybody has to be on their alert towards because that will drag in uh, other players into this that will make it um, almost uncontrollable. I know you're very passionate about the whole area of sustainability and security and how those relate. Um, would you be able to talk a bit about your work with Green Compass and what exactly you do? Green Compass is a, is a company that I, I stood up just after I retired and has built on, I suppose, two pillars from my background. Um, first of all, my background in terms of security within the Defence Forces, which um, is almost 48 years between regular and reserve. But the second part was my PhD and my master's, which are in uh, ecosystem governance. And how do you actually institutionalize the sustainable development goals into good governance? And there are three kind of uh, pillars in that. There's the market and enterprise, there is government and policy, and there's the citizen and the civil society, including uh, environmental non-government organizations. And it's the ability to create the actual... Um, framework for a legitimate, transparent input to allow the market do what it requires to do in the context dealing with what is it, the existential challenge we face. Uh, the recent um, IPCC report, it makes for chilling reading. Uh, but the reality is the technology is there. The, the issue, the challenge is, it's actually institutional, is the problem. So that's where I, I give my advice, strategic advice in terms of how you build that coalition to actually overcome the institutional uh, challenges, you know, to ensure that the transparency is there in terms of the market as it moves forward. The market doesn't always tell the ecological truth. Likewise, in terms of the policy needs to be uh, backed up with a, an administrative structure and resourcing in terms of those who will actually deliver on government policy. And the third piece is in terms of the environmental side. Um, there is a desire for perfection but perfection is the enemy of the good. So from the point of view of where Europe is, Europe and Russians, uh, Russia's opportunity was, was recognizing that just right now, Europe is not self-sufficient on energy. It relies on 40% of LNG from, from Russia, 30% of it crude. So that gave Russia a very strong hip hand and put Europe in a very weak position in terms of strategic autonomy. That needs to change. Ireland has an extraordinary capacity in particular in terms of offshore renewable energy. And it's not just going to be renewable energy. It's not about just electrons. It's about other vectors in terms of how you convert renewable energy into green hydrogen. And the other area I think that really has to be examined is the, the biodiversity regeneration. And that's a mixture of the replanting, the, uh, if you like, the uh, regeneration of biodiversity on land, but also in tandem with offshore uh, development in terms of uh, kelp, seaweed uh, uh, fields being, being generated in conjunction with marine protected areas, 
The final piece is the issue of, and the IPCC have flagged this, and this is going to come in to bear, is the issue of carbon capture and the either the sequestration of carbon in terms of a suitable geological uh, formations or the role change of that carbon that is captured into other sources that actually give you a net zero in terms of um, carbon utilization. There's no doubt that we're going to bungee beyond 1.5 degrees. We're going to go be well beyond 1.5 degrees. But the, I think the trick it will be to actually recover and come back towards about 1.5 degrees. If we do that, I think we, we can actually, I suppose, arrest the damage to many of the ecosystems that we so much depend on. If we don't do it, it is quite worrying in terms of what the tipping points are there. So my business is given that strategic advice and also on the ESG side to corporates uh, who care to listen. Uh, I only give advice. I, I'm not in the business of writing reports, but it is based on uh, decades of, uh, I suppose, interest in this area and also decades of looking in the context of what good governance should look like. Yeah, the direction of travel is definitely clear, Mark, but it's uh, it's how we get there, isn't it? It's it's, an, it's very it is, interesting. Dave, that's the key piece. And I think people, you know, you know, they, they question the technology. It's not, the, the problem is not technology. The problem is people. It's yeah. institutions. It's actually, how can we create that framework to actually collaborate? And the only way to do it is back to the multilateral framework, the same type of framework that's given us the security in Europe. And in, in fairness to Europe and the EU in particular, it has led in the context of shaping the international response towards climate change. It actually has set those goals that actually others have followed on. So I think, you know, it goes to show the strength of um, an institution such as the European Union in its capacity to provide leadership. So I, I think we should, um, we should really value our membership of the European Union in terms of its ability. And, you know, Europe actually drove that requirement for net zero by 2050. And in many ways, it strong-armed China into its commitment for net zero by 2060. That's extraordinary leadership. And we, we should commend uh, Europe and our own politicians for being part of that coalition to bring it to that, that point. The issue now is we must deliver on it in terms of those objectives. Fantastic. Uh, Mark Mellis, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Dave, thanks very much. A great opportunity. We'll chat again sometime. <laughs>